This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start off with the Times of Israel this week. First is a featured post from Omid Safari in Iran. I was taught to hate Israel and Jews. Then I watched Schindler's List. I'm Iranian, born in Iran, one year after the Islamic Revolution in 1980. I spent my entire childhood there and was schooled in its educational system, which is designed by an extremist Islamic cult known as the Islamic Republic of Iran. Throughout those years and up until today, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel dogma pervaded the society and was taught in all schools and university textbooks. During the four decades of the Islamic regime in Iran, the term occupier has always been used as a synonym for Israel in television, radio, press, and even movie channels. For decades, the idea of destroying Israel has been presented as a religious national duty for all Iranians. I come from a country where many streets are named after terrorists who have killed Jews. Electronic signs counting down the days to Israel's extermination have been erected in its streets. Government officials regularly set Israeli flags on fire alongside the American flag at public events and ceremonies. At the entrances to universities and government offices, the Israeli flag is painted on the asphalt so that people can step on it. Billions of dollars are spent annually on regime propaganda against Israel and support for terrorist groups such as Hezbollah and Hamas. Most importantly, in government propaganda, the Holocaust has always been portrayed as a historical lie. As you may recall, Iran's former president, Ahmadinejad, constantly referred to the Holocaust as a historical lie, fabricated to justify the creation of the State of Israel in international forums, and the supreme leader of Iran, Khamenei, has always called the Holocaust a fiction. Given the repetition of this message, it is only natural that Iranians like me, who were born and grew up uh, going to school and university, during the reign of the Islamic regime have a negative view of Judaism, Israel, and the Holocaust, or at best, we have no opinion on these topics. Up until the age of 30, I also lived in Iran and was influenced by the same insinuations and propaganda. After I was imprisoned multiple times because of my political activities as a reformist, I left Iran and went to Beirut to apply for asylum with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Choosing Beirut for this purpose was one of the worst, most misguided decisions of my life, and I will have to write about my horrific experiences in my years there in a separate article or book in the future. Lebanon is a country of 18 different tribes and religions, where the numerous religious and cultural differences among the people have often led to civil war. And in Lebanon, too, nearly all media references to Israel and the Jews portray them as anti-Semites, as enemies, rather, and there are multiple Lebanese and Palestinian terrorist groups fighting and inciting against Israel. It was during my time in Beirut about 10 years ago that I accidentally bought a DVD of a movie by Steven Spielberg called Schindler's List, the story of a German businessman named Oskar Schindler during the Nazi occupation of Poland. By setting up a factory at great expense and recruiting Jews living in the city of Krakow, he was able to prevent them from being sent to the Auschwitz death camps, thus saving the lives of many Jews. I was so impressed by this film that I watched it five times in one week, and from that moment I promised myself that I would have to travel to Poland before I die 
and take a closer look at what actually happened in Auschwitz and Birkenau. Finally, last year, a decade after discovering the film and having immigrated to the Netherlands, I traveled to Krakow. It was a three-day trip during which I witnessed the bitter depths of what happened to the Jewish people and the inmates of Auschwitz. During my visit to Oscar Schindler's factory, I felt that Oscar was with me and that his great soul saw me, and I also felt that I had known him for many years. In my heart, I told Oscar, you were the essence of humanity at a time when humanity disappeared. On the second day of my stay in Poland, I visited Auschwitz. The atmosphere there and seeing the facts of the Nazi atrocities against the Jews and other prisoners were so horrible that I was depressed and sad long after my return from Krakow. Sequences from Schindler's List kept appearing before my eyes. But beyond internalizing the brutal and undeniable genocide perpetrated by the Nazis against humanity, I discovered that the truth always manifests itself. Just as a two-hour movie destroyed 40 years of negative propaganda and systematic distortion of reality by the Islamic Republic in Iran, the truth, like a river, ultimately finds its way through the rocks that hinder it and continues to flow. This should have been an important lesson for dictatorial regimes like Iran, North Korea, and others. You cannot deny or, and distort history for your own purposes. You cannot promote nefarious goals such as the destruction of another nation and country by using media and propaganda in schools and universities and infecting the minds of children and adolescents. Look at me. Today, my respect for Israel and its legitimacy shows that you, the Islamic Republic of Iran, have utterly failed. I also wish that one day I could visit Steven Spielberg and tell him how, in just two hours, his beautiful movie was able to unravel the sinister and inhumane plans and goals of the Islamic regime in Iran against one of the longest-suffering nations in history, and how that movie encouraged me, who grew up in the same false education system, to take a journey to find the truth and to be able to write this text today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Oscar. Umbed Safari is an Iranian who left his country after his criticism of the Islamic Republic led to his being arrested three times. Today he lives in the Netherlands, and he has UNHCR refugee status. And next from the Times of Israel, it works. Zero deaths, only four severe cases among 523,000 fully vaccinated Israelis. HMO data a week after second dose shows 93% effectiveness unequivocally, unequivocally proving vaccine success and leaving no doubt it saved many Israeli lives, says Maccabi official by Nathan Jaffe. An Israeli healthcare provider that has vaccinated half a million people with both doses of the Pfizer vaccine says that only 544 people, or 0.1%, have been subsequently diagnosed with the coronavirus. There have been four severe cases, and no people have died. That means the effectiveness rate stands at 93%. Maccabi Healthcare Services announced on Thursday after comparing its immunized members to a diverse control group of unvaccinated members. Full protection for people who have been vaccinated is believed to kick in a week after the second shot, so the Maccabi data covers all of those of its members who are seven or more days after receiving that second dose. 
Maccabi's statistics are being closely monitored, monitored around the world for giving the first major insight into how the vaccine performs outside of clinical trials. And they are being widely hailed for indicating that real-world effectiveness is close to the 95% efficacy cited after Pfizer's clinical trials. This data unequivocally proves that the vaccine is very effective and we have no doubt that it has saved the lives of many Israelis, said senior Maccabi official Dr. Miri Mizrahi Ruveni after the new data release. She stressed that among those who have vaccinated and become infected, the vast majority have experienced the coronavirus lightly. Out of the 523,000 fully vaccinated, 544 were infected with COVID, of whom 15 need hospitalization, 8 are in mild condition, 3 in moderate condition, and 4 in severe condition. Speaking as Israel grapples with a slowdown in the vaccination campaign, Mizrahi Ruveni urged people to take notice of the new statistics and book slots, warning that those who don't are likely to get infected. Anyone who has not been vaccinated so far, please hurry up and make an important uh, an appointment as soon as possible, she said. Protect yourselves from a serious illness and, God forbid, death as well as the possibility that you will infect and endanger others. The percentage of infections reported by Maccabi Health Care Services, 0.104%, reflects a larger proportion of people getting infected since its previous vaccination stats, but a rise is expected as the statistic is cumulative, with infection numbers inevitably increasing as each day passes. This doesn't impact the effectiveness rate, which is a measure of infection levels among vaccinated people and unvaccinated people compared over any chosen time frame. And next, an article distributed by JTA, A Year of Grief, Orthodox Jewry Reels as COVID-19 Hastens the Loss of Its Rabbis by Shira Hanau. Three times on Sunday, January 31st, Orthodox men carried the body of beloved Torah scholar wrapped in a black and white prayer shawl through the streets of Jerusalem to a freshly dug grave. First, there was Rabbi Meshulam David Soloveitchik, the 99-year-old heir to a vaunted tradition of Talmudic study. A few hours later, it was Rabbi Yitzchak Shiner, the 98-year-old leader of a prominent yeshiva. And in the evening, they took Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, a psychiatrist and scion of multiple Hasidic dynasties, to his final resting place near Beit Shemesh. By nightfall, the Orthodox world would count three fewer rabbinic scholars than when the day began. All died of COVID-19, the disease that has killed well over 2.3 million people around the world, including more than 400,000 in the United States and nearly 5,000 in Israel. In Israel, one in 32 Haredi, or ultra-Orthodox Jews, over 65, have died of COVID-19, had died of COVID-19 by the end of 2020. The weekend's losses were relentless in their pace, but they reflected a cruel fact of life in the Orthodox world over the past year. A long list of Orthodox rabbinic leaders have died, leaving communities reeling from their losses and at times wondering who will emerge to fill their shoes. The deaths from COVID and from other causes during a pandemic that curtailed the mourning rituals that usually follow the deaths of major rabbis span the range of the Orthodox community from modern Orthodox to Lithuanian, not Hasidic Haredi, to Hasidic. 
In some cases, the deaths of major rabbis signaled the end of an era in which men who attained high levels of secular education also joined the ranks of the generation's leading rabbis, something that has become more rare as time goes on. And in others, the rabbis who died were symbols of connection to a past era of orthodoxy in which the quality of Torah study was deemed to be higher and holier. The rabbis leave behind many disciples who have dedicated their lives to study, so their deaths do not signal the demise of traditions, as may be the case, for example, for some Native American tribes whose elders have been hit hard by the virus. Still, the rabbis symbolized a connection to the past that is highly valued in a community based on the transmission of a tradition said to date back to the giving of the Torah to Moses at Sinai. It represents periods of real Jewish glory in terms of Holocaust scholarship, said Rabbi Menachem Ganach, chief executive officer of the, Orthod uh, of the Orthodox Union's kosher division. We're looking for that link to what was. The losses began early in the pandemic. In the United, Sta in the United States, there was the Novominsker Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Perlau, a member of the Rabbinical Council for Agudath Israel, a Haredi advocacy group. Perlau died of COVID in early April, just a few weeks after he exhorted the Haredi community to take precautions to stop the spread of the coronavirus. The loss to the Jewish people and Agudas Israel is incalculable, Agudath Israel said at the time in a statement using an alternate spelling of its name, not yet knowing how much greater the losses would be. Deaths piled up in the Haredi community in New York during the spring, though few who died were as prominent as Perlau. Meanwhile, the modern Orthodox world suffered a series of devastating losses. Rabbi Norman Lamb, former president of Yeshiva University, who had used his post there to promote his vision of modern Orthodoxy, died at age 92 in May. His wife, Mandela, died the month before of COVID, at uh, the age of 88. In August, Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz, a scholar whose expertise ran the gamut from Jewish mysticism to prayer to theology to ethics, but who became more famous for his translation of the Talmud into modern Hebrew, died at 83. Steinsaltz did not die of COVID. Lord Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the former Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom, who became an eloquent spokesperson for Judaism in the world, died in November at 72 of cancer. His death, a major blow not only to his community in the United Kingdom, but to the modern Orthodox community in the United States and others across the entire Jewish community, was mourned in a torrent of essays and tribute. Just a few days later, Rabbi David Feinstein, son of the most famous Orthodox Jewish legal authority of the 20th century, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, died at 91. In December, Rabbi Gedalia Dov Schwartz, a longtime judge in Jewish legal courts, died in Chicago at 95, as did Rabbi Yehuda Herzl Henkin, a pioneer in the world of Orthodox Jewish feminism, who died in Jerusalem at 75. Those who died were sometimes mourned for what they symbolized as much as for their individual accomplishments. Rav Dovid was the last surviving son of the Brisker Rav, Ganak said of Soloveitchik. The Brisker Rav, Rabbi Yitzchak Zev Soloveitchik, moved the Brisk Yeshiva from Poland to Jerusalem in the 1940s and helped promote the Brisker method of Talmud study, which has since become popular throughout the Orthodox world. 
you feel that loss in the sense of that living link that we had to brisk before is gone, Ganach said. Soloveitchik, at the age of 99, was one of the dwindling number of rabbis who was born in pre-war Poland, another link to the yeshiva world that thrived in Eastern Europe and was almost entirely wiped out during the Holocaust. In the United States, Feinstein formed that link, if not to the world of pre-war Europe, then to the decades when his father was the leading Orthodox rabbi in America. Moshe Feinstein, uh, his mastery of Jewish law, commanded respect from nearly every sector of the Orthodox community. Tversky, a Milwaukee native, represented another connection to a way of living as an Orthodox rabbi that has become rare. He was the son of a Hasidic rabbi who attended public school and later medical school in addition to learning in yeshiva and becoming a rabbi. Tversky became known both for his contributions to the field of psychiatry as well as his writings on Jewish subjects, and he combined the two in some of his 60-odd books and appearances at academic conferences where he presented papers dressed in Hasidic garb. He was a great believer that there was no contradiction, said Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, a psychologist and former executive vice president of the Orthodox Union. A person could be a person of great faith and a rigorous scientist. Few people who attain Tversky's level of recognition in the Orthodox community today also have graduate degrees, particularly in the sciences, with many foregoing a college education. In the Lithuanian or yeshivish world, encompassing the Haredi community that is not Hasidic, and centers around yeshivas like Soloveitchik's Brisk Yeshiva, most of the rabbis lost this year were in their 80s or 90s. Rabbi Aaron Kotler, CEO and president of the base Medrash Gavoha in Lakewood, New Jersey, the largest yeshiva of the non-Hasidic Haredi community in the United States, said that was no coincidence. We venerate age and wisdom, Kotler said, so the advanced age doesn't minimize the feeling of loss. In some way, it magnifies the feeling of loss. Yet the fact that so many Orthodox leaders have died of COVID-19 has not spurred their followers to pay greater heed to the public health advice meant to slow the virus's spread. Thousands attended the Shiner and Soloveitchik funerals in Jerusalem with few wearing masks in violation of Israel's lockdown. Ganach said the fact that many of these leaders were elderly made it easier to ignore the fact that COVID-19 had killed them. Most of the leaders are in their 80s and 90s, so it's relatively easier to detach yourself from attributing it to COVID. A person of 89 or 99 passes away, you know that can happen without COVID, Ganach said, so in that sense it's not a game changer. Not only have the deaths of beloved leaders from COVID not encouraged the community to take greater precautions in stopping the spread of the virus, they have even galvanized some to double down, according to Kimmy Kaplan, a professor of Jewish history at Bar-Ilan University in Israel, who studies Haredi communities. They take the loss and the mourning, and it gets a twist in educational terms, Kaplan said. It becomes a trigger for enhancing the community and for strengthening the community. In the modern Orthodox community, the, the, the losses of Sachs, Henkin, Steinsaltz, and Lamb registered as the rapid disappearance of rabbis who combined serious study with thought leadership. Rivka Schwartz, an associate principal at SAR High School in the Bronx's Riverdale neighborhood, 
and a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute, who writes frequently about politics and the Orthodox community, said she found Lamb to be the voice she missed most. He articulated a philosophy, Schwartz said of Lamb, thinking back to the sermons on race in America that he delivered in the 1960s. The loss of somebody doing that for the community, I think the modern Orthodox community feels very acutely. The loss of Sachs left the community without its most articulate spokesperson, even if he was often speaking to an audience that included non-Jews in many of his popular writings. In contrast to the Shiva-ish community, where yeshiva leaders who die are generally replaced by another elderly scholar, the modern Orthodox community does not have a clear succession plan for someone to fill the shoes of a Rabbi Lamb or a Rabbi Sachs. I do think that is a gaping hole, Schwartz said, and that's not going to be filled by somebody else sitting in the Rosh Yeshiva's chair. Schwartz said another gaping hole has gone largely unacknowledged, the deaths of untold numbers of Orthodox women who have died during the pandemic and rarely rose to prominence for their contributions because they were kept out of the rabbinate in all but the most progressive Orthodox communities. Typically, they are memorialized in obituaries as the wife or mother of a rabbi rather than for their own accomplishments. That's structural. If no woman is ever a public figure, they won't be on the list, said Schwartz, who grew up in the Haredi community and wrote an obituary for her teacher, Chaya Ausband, who died in May at 96. The people who taught me and who are important in that community don't speak in public, so even people who play important roles are not remembered in public in the same way. Few expect the deaths to end with these rabbis as the virus continues to spread, and younger rabbis, some trained by the rabbis who died, will eventually fill the absences they left behind. But for now, this, this year's losses continue to weigh heavily on the community. I don't mean to say that these people are irreplaceable. They're not irreplaceable. People can go, Genach said. But this corona has taken a huge toll. And next, an analysis piece from the Times of Israel with Court of Public Opinion decided Netanyahu trial no longer campaign voter by Haviv Retig Gur. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's trial resumed on Monday, flooding the news cycle with detailed reports from the Jerusalem courtroom. Broadcasts and news sites brimmed with prognostications from pundits and experts, as well as detailed notes from defense lawyers and prosecutors. But outside the TV news cycle and the live tweeted play-by-plays from reporters, the event registered little public attention. The dueling protests for and against the prime minister outside the Jerusalem district court were sparse to non-existent. A small protest was held against Netanyahu, while the area assigned by police to the prime minister's backers was nearly empty presumably in part because of Netanyahu's public call on Sunday for his supporters not to congregate and risk spreading the coronavirus. Even those running to unseat Netanyahu took little notice of the trial. Yeshatid, Labor, and Meretz dialed down the rhetoric. New Hope called it a sad day, but leader Gideon Sa'ar said in a statement that this is an issue that politicians from both sides have no need to comment on. Let the wheels of justice turn unencumbered by politics, the party said. Indeed, it was only in Likud and only among backbenchers eager to be seen supporting their party leader that one encountered any real noise. Megolan, Osnat Mark, Miki Zohar, Shlomo Karhi, a veritable rogues gallery of reliable headline-making rabble-rousers did not disappoint. 
The general indifference is important. One cannot understand the current state of Israeli politics without grasping why no one seems to think a corruption trial against a sitting prime minister is an easy way to score some campaign points. The simplest reason is the sheer amount of time Israelis from all across the, all across the political spectrum have had to get used to the idea. The Netanyahu case has been in the news cycle for the better part of five years. Any political fallout is already baked into the views, poll responses, and voting calculations on all sides. Many Netanyahu supporters agree with his claim that he is being unfairly targeted by a politicized prosecution. Many others believe that the advantages he brings as a leader far outstrip any possible malfeasance claimed in the indictment. A pair of recent polls showed that up to 54% of Israelis think he's the best prime ministerial candidate, and 56% think he is letting his legal troubles guide the pandemic fight. That means that at least 10%, give or take due to margins of error and other factors, potentially support the prime minister, even if he is prioritizing legal immunity over viral immunity. On both sides of the Netanyahu-not-Netanyahu divide, the number of voters who could potentially be swayed by his corruption trial may be too small to campaign on. Those seeking to unseat Netanyahu must therefore conduct their campaign on a different plane altogether. Three new indicators this week made clear that Netanyahu enjoys a credibility advantage, not in the sense that Israelis generally believe him to be honest, they don't, but in the sense that many Israelis believe him to possess a basic competence and seriousness as a leader that's not present among his rivals. Those strengths include a reputation for insight and experience on the global stage, a grasp of the importance of history and grand strategy, the ability to absorb vast amounts of information and formulate a coherent response to complex, po complex policy changes. Many Israelis believe that where it matters on Iran and Gaza, on dealings with the world powers, on questions of macroeconomics and fiscal policy, a thoughtful and experienced hand is on the tiller. That Netanyahu doesn't always prioritize those skills in his management of national affairs is to his supporters beside the point. In Israel's coalition system where power is shared among diverse factions and compromises are the order of the day, no prime minister can set policy in a focused and consistent way on all fronts. Then came the coronavirus. Here, more than on any other issue, his rivals believe they have found Netanyahu's weakness, the chink in his armor of competence, the evidence that there is more marketing than truth behind his reputed policy prowess. Here, his seriousness and leadership, his prioritizing of the nation's interests over his own political needs, has been tested in real time, and his critics believe has found the renowned Netanyahu sorely wanting. The public seems to agree. In a survey last week by the polling firm Midgam, Israelis were asked how they assessed the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis. It wasn't close. Fully, 61% of Israelis said it was bad, either somewhat bad, 27%, or very bad, 34%. Just 35% said it was good, with 29% choosing somewhat good, and a mere 6% saying very good. The answers are strongly influenced by political affiliation. On the self-described right, the bad-good divide was 48 to 49 percent. Among the self-described centered left, a lopsided 80 to 19 percent. Likud's campaign has tried to build on Netanyahu's long-standing reputation for competence, 
and his opponents are campaigning on the faltering of that reputation amid the pandemic. The question over whether Netanyahu is handling the pandemic well has become the heart of campaigns of Likud's three biggest rivals, New Hope, Yamina, and Yesh Atid. The dueling messaging is clear enough in campaign circulars. While a Likud poster shows Netanyahu alongside other party leaders with the slogan, Many Politicians, One Leader, ads from New Hope and Yamina respectively promise to replace this chaotic government and put things in order. Netanyahu has been maddeningly unable to punch past the 61-seat mark of a Knesset majority for two years now, staying in power by a chaotic rejiggering of Israeli constitutional rules, and it must be said a willingness to hamper the normal functioning of government and freeze the state budget in order to avoid handing the baton of power to his opponents. On Monday, a poll by the panel's politics firm for radio station 103FM highlighted that deadlock with the finding that Likud, Shas, United Torah Judaism, and Religious Zionism, the right religious bloc considered safely in Netanyahu's camp, would win 49 seats if the election were held this week. Naftali Bennett's Yamina, a swing vote on the question of who will be Israel's next prime minister, won 11 seats. The bloc Netanyahu hopes for then clocks in at exactly 60 seats, while parties vehemently opposed to Netanyahu, New Hope, Yeshatid, The Joint List, Israel Betenu, Labor, Blue and White, and Meretz also took 60. Two center-left parties, Blue and White and Meretz, hover just above the threshold. So does religious Zionism on the right. The race is so closely deadlocked that it may well be decided by the tiniest of shifts in voter turnout for one of those marginal parties, pushing one or the other out of the next Knesset. But there's another finding in the, polls, uh, in the poll that reveals something important about what Israelis think about the race beyond the narrow scope of party affiliation. The poll asked respondents to pretend that they were voting in a direct race for the premiership, pitting Netanyahu head-to-head against his self-declared challengers Naftali Bennett, Gideon Sa'ar, and Yair Lapid. The upshot? Netanyahu wins in every case, even drawing the support of one in every five self-described center-left voters. The obvious must be said. Outside of a short period in the 1990s when Israeli election law was changed, Israel's electoral system doesn't pit individuals against each other in this way. But the question helps gauge public support for a candidate unmediated by voters' divisions into party lists. So it matters that Netanyahu beats Yesh Atid leader Yair Lapid 54% to 37%, finally garnering, uh, garnering the outright majority he can't seem to win in the party list vote. It's revealing, too, that 18% of self-described right-wingers in such a race would vote for Lapid, 75% for Netanyahu, and 21% of self-described center-left voters would vote Netanyahu, and 66% for Lapid. Netanyahu beats men at 43 to 35%, a narrower gap that reflects the narrower 55 to 33% race on the fight in favor of Netanyahu. Among the center-left, Bennett's decidedly rightist views weaken him. Those who would vote Bennett, 38%, are equal in number to those who said they don't know who they'd vote for, 38%. Netanyahu wins 24% among them. It's New Hope's Gideon Sa'ar who gives Netanyahu the toughest challenge, though Netanyahu still edges out in front. Netanyahu wins by 45% to 41%, with more than a 2-to-1 advantage on the right, 62 to 29%. The numbers help explain Sa'ar's strength, which seems to draw on the advantages of both uh, the advantages of both Bennett and Lapid. 
In a head-to-head against Netanyahu, he draws about 11 points worth of right-wingers that Lapid can't draw, and he wins an almost identical victory as Lapid among the center-left, 60% to Netanyahu's 19%. Like Netanyahu, Sa'ar's party list support is lower than the support he'd win in a direct vote, in part because he's viewed as a viable alternative to the premier among center-left voters who vote for the liberal parties. If the majority of polls bear out on Election Day, Israel may be headed to yet another deadlocked election. Barring Naftali Bennett's abandonment of Netanyahu, not an impossible scenario, but also not an assured one, neither Netanyahu nor any of his challengers have an obvious path to victory. But there's another factor that could turn the race, and it goes against Netanyahu. The Prime Minister maintains his grip on the right even against Sa'ar, his toughest right-wing challenger but there's a growing base of disenchantment with him among that supportive base. The polls suggest the base is unlikely to abandon him for another candidate, but it could stay home on Election Day. In a close race, even a small drop-off in turnout could mean a dramatic shift at the ballot box. A poll by the Ma'agar Mohot firm for right-wing Channel 20, published Tuesday, suggests Netanyahu has cause for concern. The poll shows the same close race as the previous day's 103FM poll, a 60-seat right religious coalition for Netanyahu, yet again just short of a majority. But it also finds Likud voters much less sure they'll be voting this time around than voters for other key parties. The poll found that 67% of Yeshatid and New Hope voters said they were certain that they would be voting on March 23rd, and an even higher 75% among those who plan to vote Labor, likely reflecting newfound optimism over the party's prospects under new party leader Marav Micheli. Among Likud voters, the figure was just 53%. An optimistic interpretation might suggest that Likud has lots of room to grow. A smart campaign has the potential to decisively increase Likud's ballot box showing. A pessimistic view would argue that, as with the corruption trial, all the rhetorical and marketing flourishes are already baked into the current behaviors. Voters are headed to the polls for the fourth time in two years. What are they going to hear in the next 42 days that they haven't heard in the last 777 days since the 20th Knesset voted to dissolve itself December 26, 2018, sparking the first of four nearly back-to-back elections? It's just as likely that no gimmick or marketing slogan will change the disaffection some in Likud now seem to feel. All these findings assemble themselves into a simple insight. The election is a referendum on Netanyahu, but Israelis have bigger worries than his trial. Anyone trying to read the tea leaves of the election would be wise to generally ignore the trial, even if it returns regularly to the headlines and drives the news cycle. The voters are ignoring it, and so are the politicians, as always with the exception of backbench Likudniks. It's the pandemic and the government's often flailing response to it that could decide the election. The decisive shifts will be small. A single-digit drop in Likud turnout could decide the race. So could a two-seat rally for left-wing labor and merits that holds both above the threshold while driving religious Zionism below it. Those narrow margins suggest the opposite is also true. A better campaign on either side could make all the difference. And next from the Times of Israel, an interview. No longer, U.S. Ambassador David Friedman is sticking to his sledgehammers. By Laser Berman, Times of Israel. 
David Friedman still believes. The bankruptcy lawyer who became one of Donald Trump's most trusted foreign policy advisors came into his role as U.S. ambassador to Israel with a clearly defined conservative pro-Israel ideology, and he left office with that worldview firmly intact. Friedman maintains that by coming in as outsiders without any diplomatic experience, he and others in the administration were able to smash precedents and deliver a number of policy objectives long sought by Israel and many in the United States. Moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 2018, normalizing with parts of the Arab world, pulling the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear deal, recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, threatening the International Criminal Court over a war crimes investigation into Israel, declaring that Israel's West Bank settlements do not violate international law, and calling the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement a manifestation of anti-Semitism. The U.S. foreign policy elite spent no time with anyone but Israeli foreign policy elites in developing their views, Friedman told the Times of Israel on Monday from the porch of his non-ambassadorial apartment in Jerusalem. He takes pride in his breaking of barriers, which in 2019 extended beyond metaphor to actually sledgehammering open a wall at the unveiling of a new archaeological site in Jerusalem's city of David, which lies underneath the Palestinian neighborhood of Silwan. He drew much fire for such a move in the midst of the city's sensitive status quo. He still believes the proposed deal of this century, Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement, which had absolutely no official Palestinian buy-in, will help get things moving in the Middle East. And while he believes Trump's legacy was damaged by the events of January 6th, he remains firm in his conviction that Donald Trump did wonders for Israel and the Middle East. I think he's got an incredible legacy, he said. Friedman, an Orthodox Jewish lawyer who had represented Trump in his business dealings, had no experience in diplomacy before he assumed his post in 2017. But he says he had a different type of experience while his predecessors completely detached from Israeli society. The one thing I brought to the table that I think was different than my predecessors was that I know the Israeli people. I know them all, he said, in comments that made clear that he was referring primarily to Jewish Israelis. You know, I've been in to Israel probably 75 to 100 times before I got this job, and I engaged with Israelis who are deeply religious and deeply secular and everybody in between. I think I have a pretty good understanding of what makes Israel tick. Friedman had no shortage of detractors. Among other things, he has been derided for helping turn Israel into a partisan wedge issue in the U.S., and he has been pilloried for his support for the settlement and seemingly one-sided approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. According to the New Yorker, when he first came into office, he suggested that Egypt should take back Gazans. David Friedman is a walking wrecking crew to both the American Jewish consensus and bipartisan consensus on Israel, Tablet's Yair Rosenberg tweeted in March. Still, the New York Times called Friedman one of America's most influential envoys, and by all accounts he played a pivotal role in shaping Trump's policies toward Israel and the Middle East. Working closely with Trump's special representative Jason Greenblatt and senior advisor Jared Kushner, Friedman convinced Trump to adopt their recommendations over those of senior administration officials who pushed a more traditional stance toward Israeli-Palestinian issues. 
We did everything we thought we could do, Friedman said he told Kushner in a recent post-election phone call. We worked as hard as we could until noon on January 20 to create as many wins for America and the president as we could. Even after Trump's electoral defeat in November 2020 and the loss of Republican Senate control shortly, shortly thereafter, Friedman continues to see the former U.S. president as a uniquely skilled politician. I think he's the greatest retail politician in history, Friedman posited. I think he is uniquely able to convey a sense of empathy. People say that he's not empathetic. I think just the opposite. I think he is the most talented in making people think and feel that he cares about them. Friedman, who came to know Trump as a businessman, feels his career as a developer was a major political asset. He comes from this white-collar family, but in a blue-collar business. He spent his whole life on job sites with lunch pail guys and women, doing ribboning and sheetrock, and so he really knows working-class America, and I think that comes across. He likened Barack Obama's and Bill Clinton's lofty rhetorical styles to Chinese food that leaves you unsated an hour later. You get the rhetoric, you walk out of there feeling good, and you ask yourself, how's this going to affect me? And it doesn't. It doesn't affect anybody, he said. Trump was able to take political principles and to translate them into on-the-ground benefits to working-class America. And I don't think anyone's been able to do that like him before, and I don't think anyone will be able to do it again. It's because he's not scripted, he comes across as being entirely authentic. That authenticity resonates, with, and most of that authenticity comes across as being a guy who just wants to make people's lives better. And I don't think anyone has been as good as him in the past doing that. Despite the obvious esteem in which he holds Trump, Friedman is critical of the way the president spoke and behaved during some notable episodes. He has not spoken to Trump about his comments on the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, nor about the turbulent and ultimately violent final weeks of his presidency. Friedman argues that the media reaction to Trump's August 15, 2017 press conference on the Charlottesville violence in which the U.S. president said there were very fine people on both sides was unfair, though he admits that he would not have chosen the words Trump used, calling them an unforced error. Just read the transcript. He made it abundantly clear immediately after saying there were fine people on both sides immediately. Immediately, the next words out of his mouth were, of course I'm not talking about white supremacists. In fact, Trump qualified his remarks a few questions later, saying, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. Friedman was more upset with Trump's rhetoric during the January 6th 2021 Save America rally just before thousands of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol building, in which Trump riled up a crowd to march to the Capitol to stop the certification of the Electoral College votes. I just didn't think it had any place to go, Friedman said. I just didn't see how it would end well because the Congress is going to certify a winner. There was no question about that. I don't think he had any expectation that it would lead to violence. I don't think he expected that. But I do think that his rhetoric contributed to it, and everyone has to own their words. It's just unfortunate, said Friedman, who himself had refused to admit that Trump lost the election until January 8th and did not speak out publicly following the storming of the Capitol. But what really gets him angry is the fact that former administration officials are now reportedly being blackballed for pri from private sector work, or in his words, canceled. 
A lot of people that worked really, really hard for four years to represent the United States and to grow and help and make the U.S. a stronger, better, more prosperous country, they worked their asses off day and night for four years, and now because of the world that we live in, they can't get jobs because they've all been canceled, he said. Maybe they would have been canceled without January 6th, but January 6th gave a lot of people an easy out to, debri to deprive these people. It's just ridiculous because none of these people had anything to do with January 6th, and all of these people were motivated by the highest aspirations to serve the United States. Even with his criticism of the final weeks of the Trump administration, Friedman is convinced that the 45th president's legacy will improve with time. Obviously, the Trump legacy is way more than January 6th. It's not a great way to go out. I'm very proud of his legacy. It bothers me to no end that people associated with him are having a hard time right now. Friedman, 62, grew up in North Woodmere, New York. His father, Morris Friedman, was a prominent conservative rabbi who, in his telling, marched with the civil rights movement, convened prayer vigils to mourn the assassinations of President Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King, and in the 1970s often handcuffed himself to the Soviet mission to protest the Kremlin's refusal to allow Soviet Jews to emigrate. The younger Friedman became a lawyer representing Trump as a partner in the firm Kasowitz, Benson, Torres, and Friedman. The same improvisational and pugnacious style that would mark Trump's presidency was apparent to his legal team. I can tell you he's not scripted, Friedman recalled. As a lawyer, when I used to put him on the witness stand, I can tell you my own frustrations with getting him to stick to the to his script. He will say what he wants to say when he wants to say it. Friedman does not remember any extensive conversations with his client about politics or Israel, but there was one encounter between the two that left its mark on the future president. In the mid-2000s, while the Second Intifada was still raging in Israel, Friedman and Trump were sitting in a conference room waiting for a meeting to start. Friedman pulled out blueprints for a 500-square-meter or 5,380-square-foot apartment he was building in Jerusalem. Trump asked how much the project cost, and when he heard, responded, Wow, that's a lot of money for Jerusalem. You can get a place in East Hampton. Go there for weekends. 6,000 miles away, Jerusalem is not known for being a resort. Friedman explained to the real estate mogul why he had bought the apartment and what it meant to him. In 2003, Friedman had been in Israel for the wedding of his cousin, Hanan San, to Nava Applebaum. The night before the wedding, the bride and her father, David, a pioneer of emergency medicine in Israel, went to Cafe Hillel in Jerusalem for a father-daughter chat. A Palestinian suicide bomber blew himself up just as the Applebaums were walking into the coffee shop, killing them and five others. As a Kohen, or a member of the Jewish priestly class, Friedman could not attend the funeral, so he went for a walk in Jerusalem and stopped at a construction site that piqued his interest. This was just a bunch of cinder blocks with a sign from the contractor. I called the guy and said, come meet me over here, and we needed some ropes and ladders to get to this spot. I wanted to see what the new view is like. I said, I'll take the whole floor, and he said, come on, we're in the middle of an intifada. I said, well, no one else wants to buy anything right now, and this is my own personal way to make sense of what just happened with the suicide bombing. At least I can, in my own small personal way, put my money where my mouth is and show that Jewish people are not going to be bombed out of Jerusalem. And, as I, told the, and I told this to Donald at the time. I think he took notice. That was the realization, that was the conversation that I think spoke to him because then he realized that this was much more than a real estate investment.
It wasn't a bad investment, though, as housing prices since then have nearly tripled. Friedman joined Trump's presidential campaign in April 2016, the same month Trump declared himself the presumptive nominee after sweeping five northeastern states in one day of primaries. Along with Greenblatt, another Orthodox Jew who is then chief legal officer and executive vice president of the Trump Organization, Friedman co-headed Trump's Israel Advisory Committee. There was some hand-wringing about Trump's pro-Israel bona fides at the time. In February 2016, he promised to be a neutral broker in Israeli-Palestinian talks, indicating to some observers that he would break with previous bipartisan support for Israel. But Friedman had no doubt that Trump intended to support Israel. The candidate asked Friedman and Greenblatt to come up with specific policies. He gave us a pretty wide berth then, and he did after he was elected as well, Friedman recalled. He wanted to be pro-Israel, he wanted to be meaningfully pro, more pro-Israel than his predecessors, and I think he needed our help to define and create an overall approach that was consistent with his desire to support Israel. Friedman and Greenblatt wrote the 2016 GOP platform plank on Israel, which made no, intent, no mention of a two-state solution, while advocating for policies that reflect Americans' strong desire for a relationship with no daylight between America and Israel. It went on, we recognize Jerusalem as the eternal and indivisible capital of the Jewish state and call for the American embassy to be moved there in fulfillment of U.S. law. Like most pundits, Friedman expected Trump to lose to Hillary Clinton on Election Day. We woke up in the morning and I said to my wife, what a shame this has come to an end. This was so much fun. He decided to head over to Trump campaign headquarters to show his support, and while he was there, it became increasingly clear that Trump was going to win. I went to see him the next day, Friedman remembers. I'm sure he got less sleep than me. I saw him at his office the next morning at 8 a.m. to congratulate him and to remind him that we had a conversation about me being the ambassador, and I hoped he would take that to heart. The president-elect kept his word, taking the rare step of announcing his pick for ambassador to Israel before he assumed office. As with most everything else regarding Trump's campaign and ascension to power, there was no shortage of controversy. Friedman's nomination was called dangerous and a mistake by Daniel Kurtzer, an ambassador to Israel for George W. Bush, in a New York Times op-ed. A total of five former U.S. envoys called him unqualified for the position. During his confronta- confirmation hearing in February 2017, he was asked about an article he wrote the year before in which he condemned Obama's anti-Semitism and said that the dovish pro-Israel lobby J Street are far worse than capos referring to Jews who aided Nazis during the Holocaust. Friedman apologized for the statements during the hearing. Today, Friedman still regrets his poor choice of words, but nothing more. My policy differences with J Street couldn't be more stark, he declared. The Senate approved him 52-46. to 46. New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin were the only Democrats to support him. The lack of bipartisan support left him with a sense of profound disappointment, even bitterness, one that he seems to carry with him to this day. His predecessors, he said, had received bipartisan backing from the Senate. When I was selected, none of that courtesy was extended by the Democrats toward me, he said. Despite the pro-settlement freedmen helping Trump shape his Israel policy, it was clear from early on that the president was also listening to other voices. During Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's trip to Washington in February 2017, 
Trump caught his visitor off guard, telling him in front of reporters that both sides will have to make compromises and that he wanted Israel to hold back on settlements for a little bit. Friedman says the claims of tensions between Trump and Netanyahu were the result of people who tried to insinuate themselves into this and to offer the president their views. That included his boss at the time, then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Friedman said there was complete disagreement between him and Tillerson. He was against Jerusalem, the embassy. He subscribed to the view that settlements violated international law. I think he thought that the administration's policies were not sufficiently even-handed with regard to the Palestinians. I think he had a very traditional view of Israel, hard to differentiate from the Obama administration. Tillerson and Defense Secretary James Mattis were against Phase 1, said Friedman, the step of simply recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. They just didn't see the point. Friedman describes a critical two-hour November 2017 meeting during which the two ideological camps within the administration presented to Trump their arguments on moving the embassy. In addition to the president, Vice President Mike Pence, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, Chief of Staff John Kelly, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Tillerson, Mattis, and Friedman were in the room. It was a pretty heated debate. Tillerson was primarily the opponent. Mattis was generally with Tillerson. I was the primary speaker for the pro-move. Friedman told Trump and his senior advisors that moving the embassy was where the rubber hit the road on his entire foreign policy. Many presidential candidates had promised to move the embassy, but once in office, all had signed waivers every six months to keep it in Tel Aviv on the advice that moving it would spark a major backlash that would pose a security threat. This was where we would see whether Trump was a new type of leader who kept his promises, who didn't flinch from his enemies, who was willing to think outside the box and willing to consider observing the will of the American people whose leaders had passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act 22 years earlier by an overwhelming bipartisan majority, he said. So this was really where the president was going to take a stand and say, I'm not going to let some kind of atmospheric hypothetical threats from a bunch of rogue players influence American foreign policy. Friedman also told Trump that he thought the move would resonate throughout the world with American adversaries, especially Iran, North Korea, and China. I think David's right, Trump concluded in Friedman's telling, of course I need to do this. I made a promise. It's U.S. law. Trump gave a speech December 6, 2017, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Two months later, he announced that the U.S. would be moving its embassy to Jerusalem in May 2018 to coincide with Israel's 70th anniversary. The administration did not expect any violence in the wake of the moves. They regularly checked in with their embassies across the region. We prepared for the worst, but we didn't see it at all. And we were right. While there were large protests outside embassies around the world, none of them snowballed into any major threat. In Gaza, though, a series of violent border demonstrations on the Israeli-Gaza border that began in March reached their apogee on May 14, 2018. Over 60 Palestinians were killed, many of them purportedly members of the Hamas terror group, and thousands more wounded by live fire, rubber bullets, and tear gas. In the international media, the embassy opening ceremony was juxtaposed with the deadly violence on the Gaza border, giving Israel a black eye. Israeli officials believed the protests, which continued sporadically for months, had nothing to do with Trump's Jerusalem announcements, but instead were the product of the failed reconciliation talks between Hamas and Fatah 
and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza under the Israeli-Egyptian blockade. Friedman argues that Muslims were largely apathetic about Jerusalem's status as Israel's capital. If you go to the Muslim world, yes, the Muslim world cares a lot about Al-Aqsa, but as a religious site, not as a political capital. Most Arabs in Jerusalem, Friedman claims, do not want to see the city divided because they work in West Jerusalem. It was the Palestinian leadership who made Jerusalem into an issue, he said. But what I had been seeing for years was that this just was not filtering down to the people of any of the Arab nations. In fact, a survey by the Palestinian Center for Public Opinion has consistently found that 70% or more of East Jerusalem Palestinians want to be a part of a Palestinian state. In 2020, more respondents said they would want to be Jordanian than part of Israel. The survey of 650 East Jerusalem residents published by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy found that two-thirds were in favor of a united Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. In May 2017, Trump visited Israel and also traveled to Bethlehem to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. According to Friedman, the meeting got off to a bad start when Trump realized his ambassador to Israel was not there because the PA had rejected a request to have him attend. U.S. policy until then had dictated that the U.S. consul to Jerusalem, who serves as the U.S. representative to the Palestinians, attend such meetings. But according to Friedman, Abbas's refusal to allow the ambassador to attend the meeting set Trump off. The first thing Trump said when he arrived was, where's David? Friedman said he was told. He learned that Abbas had insisted that I not come because, as the U.S. ambassador to Israel, I had no role to play in uh, being in that room. And I think that got him aggravated. Trump's not a politician. He doesn't understand the boxes that people fit into in government. And his perspective was, I'm in Israel, I'm an ambassador to Israel, but I'm also, in his view, a pretty talented guy, and he thought that the Palestinian conflict was something that I could be helpful on, and he wanted me to be engaged. Three months later, after Trump insisted on the matter, Friedman did attend a meeting with Palestinian negotiators alongside Greenblatt and U.S. Consul General Donald Blome. The meeting on restarting peace talks was held in Jerusalem because Palestinians refused to host Friedman in Ramallah, according to reports at the time. After Trump's Jerusalem announcement, the Palestinians cut off contacts with the administration, but Friedman, Greenblatt, and Jared Kushner still pushed ahead with a plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace. It really took form with efforts by Jared, Jason, and me, Friedman explained, and Greenblatt's replacement, Avi Berkowitz, came in later. And over time, we brought in Haley and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and then the President. A guiding principle as the plan came together was to treat Israel's security needs as a primary concern, which Friedman said went beyond security guarantees. Meaning not to just accept as articulated every security point that Israel has, but to understand that Israel ultimately is responsible for its own security, and if they don't think that this plan will protect them from a security perspective, then it would be dead on arrival, justifiably so, Friedman said. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.